Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes The Parable of the Generous Master, The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector, and You Are Not the Good Samaritan. Enjoy. So out of all the examples in the Bible of different parables, we have some examples like the parable of the soils, where Jesus explains afterwards, he says to the disciples, well, this is what the parable means. So out of all those examples of different parables, parable of lost sheep, parable of the coins, why is it that the parable of the unrighteous steward is so confusing? Well, let's get into it. of the unrighteous steward. That's the title that we have for this parable in the text. And one of the difficulties with parables is that they are intentionally nonspecific sometimes. Intentionally, what God does with some parables is he hides some things, he hides some truths, and reveals some truths specifically to Christians. So if you were to take a, a parable and you were to take it completely out of context, you might be able to glean some sort of moralistic lesson from it. Parable of the Good Samaritan, you should be nice to people, something like that. Um, but really, parables are designed to have sort of weird elements that don't fit. For example, a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to find one sheep. That doesn't make sense. I mean, we're conditioned to kind of think it does make sense, and in the Christian worldview, it does make sense. But in the sense of, this is the guy's livelihood, this is how he makes his money, he's gonna forsake 99% of his business in order to chase after 1% of his business. And that 1% of the business wandered away on its own accord, by the way. That, that's not, not the greatest business move. A shepherd dying for his sheep? Again, this is somebody dying for their business, somebody dying for that which makes them profit. Um, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And we get to this parable of the unrighteous steward. That's the, uh, that's the title that, that shows up in a, in a couple different translations. The parable of the unrighteous steward. And you've got this case where it looks like the endorsement is about being deceptive. It's, if you were to take it like an Aesop's fable and you were to, to look at it and say, well, what's the moral of this story? If you weren't a Christian, it would be pretty easy to come away with the moral that you should use your money to make sure you, you know, you ingratiate others to you and, and you've, got a, you've got a spot so you've always got a job. <laughs> that's, that's not what it's about. No. Um, yeah, so the parable of the unrighteous steward, I retitled it in, uh, when I was writing about it a little while ago. I retitled it to be the parable of the generous master. And ultimately, one thing we have to consider is that parables are about Jesus. They are, I mean, that's like the point of parables is to talk about God. 
Uh, and when we go to a parable and our immediate, our immediate desire is to say, where can I fit in in the parable? Am I the good Samaritan? I want to be the good Samaritan. That guy's a good guy. I want to be him. Oh, boy. That parable is not about you being the good Samaritan. You're the dead guy. You're the dead guy at best. At worst, you're you're the guys who are ignoring this, this guy who's basically dead. In the parable of the unrighteous steward, again, don't look at where you stick yourself into the parable. Oh, I want to be the, I want to be that, you know, that, that shifty, clever steward. Hmm, no. What is it saying about God? Who is God in the parable? Well, God's the master. God's the master in the parable. That's, that's super obvious. Um, so God's the master in this parable. What is the parable saying about the master? Now, if you took just just uh, an over just a skim overhead, real quick, you'd say, well, the parable doesn't say a whole lot about the master. The parable talks about this unrighteous steward the entire time. Well, what does the unrighteous steward do, and how does he think, in accord with how he thinks about the master? What are the characteristics of the master that are a little bit absurd, a little bit weird? So at the beginning, the master fires the unrighteous steward on the spot. Fired. Effective immediately. No job. Doesn't kick him out. He doesn't throw him to prison. Now, he would throw him to prison if, for example, the unrighteous steward owed him money. And in the case of him wasting so many of the master's resources, so many of the master's uh, profits, the unrighteous steward did owe the master money. For some reason or another, it's not explained exactly how, but the unrighteous steward owed the master money. And he should, by all accounts, have been thrown in prison for the rest of his life, presumably, if he couldn't pay back the, uh, the amount that he owed. But the master, even though it was his right, decided to be generous and gracious. He decided to have mercy on the unrighteous steward. Well, the unrighteous steward knew the master well enough to know that this is what he would do. Or at least he trusted that this is what he would do. So when the master says, what are these things I've been hearing about you? As, you know, expecting him to indict himself, even though the master already knows what he did wrong. The steward does not try to make excuses. He does not say, oh, it was somebody else's fault. Or, oh, I'm not really that bad. I mean, compare me to this other guy who's much worse than I am. Or just outright denying that there was anything wrong in the first place. None of those easy excuses he makes. And those are, those are classic excuses that... I mean, everybody from a toddler who's caught in the act of, you know, smearing chocolate frosting on the dog to, uh, to an adult who's caught in tax evasion. Anyone in any of those situations is going to be able to make an argument like that. But this, but this steward, clever as he is, he trusts in the mercy of the master and he doesn't make an excuse. He just says nothing. Yep. I mean, meant to, this is essentially saying, I have no defense. I am guilty. I, I, I sinned. You see where this is going? I sinned and I deserve whatever punishment is handed to me. I will not try to make an excuse to lessen that punishment. But again, he trusts in the mercy of the master and the master doesn't throw him in prison, but says, go and get the books. Well, he goes and gets the books and then he's all up, he's up to all of his tomfoolery, you know, he deducting 500 denarii from who, you know, all the different accounts of the books. And he has these people sign 
Well, he doesn't have the authority to, de to deduct these, uh, these amounts. That being said, he does this, again, thinking about, try to put yourself in his mind, what does he think about the master? What is this revealing about the master? He trusts that the master will take these new accounts, will take these new amounts of the accounts, and he will honor them. Even though they're, they don't deserve to be changed. They don't. He has no, the, the steward has no authority to change them. But he trusts that the master will be merciful and generous. That the master will say, okay, you know, this is true. They don't deserve to have this amount deducted from them, but I love the people and I'm going to, I'm going to allow them to have that, that break. So again, this is trusting in the master to be merciful. And again, trusting in the master when he finds out, you know, this trickery, because it's, you know, it's such a great trick until he brings the book before the master and then immediately the master knows what's going on. And what the master says is not, you know, oh, you, you, you already bad person. Uh, you are caught in the act of doing even more bad things. The master says, you know, he, he commends the steward on his, on his cleverness, basically. But really, he's commending the steward for knowing his master. The steward knows that his master is generous, gracious, and merciful. And he knows that even though he doesn't deserve anything but to be thrown in prison for the rest of his life, that even with this, even with this trickery at the end, that his master will remain generous, merciful, and gracious. And that's what happens. And ultimately, that's the point of the parable. Who is the master? The master is God. What are the characteristics of the master? The master is generous. The master is merciful. The master is gracious. Can the master be trusted for these things? Absolutely. Even when the person doesn't deserve them. So what do we get? For a picture of God from this thing. We get that even we as sinners caught in the act or caught, you know, we've already sinned, we've already screwed up, we already deserve to be thrown in prison for the rest of our lives for our sins. God still looks at us and God still is merciful, gracious, and generous to us. And God gives people blessing that they don't deserve and he, and he withholds punishment that people do deserve if those people trust in him and don't try to make their own excuses, don't try to make some other way to get around the problem. So the parable of the unrighteous steward, I like to think about it as the parable of the generous master. Have a wonderful day. The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Jesus tells this parable where these two guys are in the temple. And one of the guys is a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, it's essentially the guy who knows who knows the Bible really well, the guy who acts really good all the time, who follows the Bible to the best of his ability, who, uh, who maybe even does a little bit extra charity work and stuff like that. Whereas a tax collector, 
is not somebody who works for the IRS, but somebody who betrayed his own people. Somebody who, uh, who bribed the Romans to get this job as a tax collector so he could take more money than was required for taxes from his own people, from his own family, his own community. You know, real dirtbag guy. So the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, these two guys are in the temple and they're both, they're both having to pray, right? And the Pharisee goes first and he says, I thank God that I am not like those horrible other people, those extortioners, those adulterers, those, those liars, those, those evil men. And I thank God that I, have, that I am so good that I tithe uh, and, and I fast twice a week and I do all of this great, this great faithful stuff. I thank God that I am so good and I am not like those horrible other people. And then the tax collector, uh, he gets his turn to pray and he's in the back and he is not so boastful. He does not look up to heaven at all, in fact, uh, because he's so crushed by the guilt of his own sin. And he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's got nothing to offer. He's got no good works to talk about. He's got nothing going for him. He just throws himself at the mercy of God. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. A classic. Let's get into it. So in this parable, Jesus, Jesus does his thing. Where when he goes around and he talks with people, he says things that they don't necessarily agree with. He'll go and he'll pick a fight with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the, you know, this group or that group. Uh, and he often finds people who are content in one sin or another, in one way or th of thinking or another, and he directly contradicts them in front of everybody. And then they get really mad. And this is another example where Jesus, Jesus is talking to this group of people who are, well, he wants to contradict these people who think who think that they're hot snot, right? They've got, they've got the Bible memorized forward and backward. They, you know, they go to the temple all the time. They do all the good stuff that's required of them to do. You know, they, they're these really good faithful people. You know, cream of the crop, faithful Christians, only in the ancient sense. So what Jesus does is he basically lays out this parable that sets up their hero, their hero, the Pharisees, these guys who are the supermen of doing good, the supermen of doing faithful spiritual good, and he sets them up in contrast to the horrible Lex Luthers of the, uh, <laughs> of the ancient world, these tax collectors, these people who would steal from their own, from their own kin just to give themselves, you know, that, that added edge, just to buy that, that extra inch on the flat screen TV, you know? And he sets, sets up these, these, these good guys, these supermen, as bad guys, and he sets up these bad guys as they're the ones who are justified at the end. At the end of the parable, the tax collector goes home justified, and the Pharisee does not. So obviously, this is, this is a controversial thing for these, for these guys. This, Jesus, is, <laughs> Jesus is destroying this view of these, these high holy people. Um, and the thing is, he's not... He's not saying that the Pharisees are inherently more sinful than the tax collectors. He's not saying, oh, you guys think that, you know, these guys who read the Bible all the time and follow the law, you think that they're good, but they're really, you know, always awful. No, instead he's, he's, 
showing a contrast here. He's showing these guys who are really, really good at keeping the law, really good at keeping God's commandments, you know, really good at, at, at scripture and prayer and all that good stuff. And it is good stuff. Those are all good things. He's saying these guys do all of these wonderful things, but at the end of the day, if they trust in their own goodness, if they say, oh, I thank God that I am not like these other people because I'm good because I do these good things. If they trust in themselves and their own goodness rather than in the goodness of God, then they go home and they're not justified. So you could be the most wonderful person in the world. You can give to charity. You can do, I mean, just, just think of whatever, you know, the most faithful Mother Teresa, Bob Ross, Mr. Rogers type of person, you know, old Grandma Schmeck and Pepper going down and, and volunteering at the, at the soup kitchen. And then on Sunday, she bakes a, you know, uh, she bakes a whole like six dozen cookies for, you know, for Bible study. You know, this really, really nice, genuinely nice, good people who are doing a lot of good things. And if they don't have faith in God, then all their good things mean nothing. That's what he's saying. He's saying that as much as the Pharisees were capable and did in fact do a lot of good and holy things, all of that didn't count for anything in the end if they didn't put their faith in God. If they didn't put their faith in the saving work of Christ on the cross. On the other hand, you have the tax collector. You have the scum of the earth dirtbag. You have the worst person in all society. You have the, and this is what I said in the sermon, is I, uh, I replaced tax collector with Jeffrey Epstein. I'm like, just horrible person, just Adolf Hitler of society, Osama bin Laden. Just pick your, pick your bad guy. Uh, that's the tax collector. And they've got a life full of sin, and it's the worst kind of sin. And everybody knows about their sin, and they don't even try to hide it. And Well, then they get to this stage in life where they're, where they're in the temple. The tax collector's in the temple, and he is just crushed by the weight of his sin. And he is just beaten up by all of these horrible things that he's done in life. And they are bad things. Uh, he's done these horrible things in life, and he's got no defense. He doesn't tithe. He doesn't fast twice a week. He doesn't know... You know, he didn't memorize all the books in the Bible. Uh, you know, he's got nothing going for him. He says, God be merciful to me. I got nothing. I, I'm a horrible person. I'm rotten. I've done everything. I've broken every one of your commandments. I'm just this horrible, terrible, no good, very bad person. And he's being genuine about it. He, he acknowledges his sin. He says, I hate, you know, he hates his sin. This is what repentance is. It's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry and not meeting it. To repent means to change your heart. So this tax collector, with a life of sin, is saying, I have a whole life of sin, and I hate it, and I want God's mercy. I desire God's mercy more than anything that I've, you know, accumulated over my entire life. So he rejects his life of sin. He rejects his own actions, and he trusts instead in the work of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And at the end of the day, he goes home justified. That's what, that's what Jesus says in the parable. At the end of the day, he has his whole list, this lifetime of sin, this horrible, horrible sin. It's just the worst sin you could think of, just murder and just adultery and, and, and everything you could think of, just the most horrible, horrible person. And at the end of the day, God is the one who pays the debt for all of that sin. He doesn't trust in his own actions to kind of clear out his own debt. He doesn't start saying, oh, I have changed my ways and now I'm going to do good stuff and I got to, 
you know, I got to go to enough soup kitchens to undo all the people I've stolen from. He doesn't do that. He doesn't trust in himself because he's got the wisdom and the faith to know that he can't, he can't right all the wrongs that he's done. He can't even right one of them. He can't pay for his own debt, and he knows that he's going to keep sinning. But he hates his sin, and he loves his God, and he trusts his God. And at the end of the day, that was what saved him. What saved him was his repentance and faith. They're both part, two sides of the same coin. The repentance to have the change of heart, to hate your sin, and the faith that God's death on the cross pays for your sin, and that you can trust in that and in Christ's death alone on the cross. So because of his faith, he is credited with, a, with, the, with the benefits of God's death on the cross. His sin is paid for. His debt is cleared. He's given an abundance in his, in his spiritual bank account. He's given the, the, the goodness of God is credited to, to his account, and he goes home justified. It's a wonderful parable. It's a, oh, oof, I love it. A classic. An absolute classic. So don't trust the moral of the story, the moral of the parable. Don't trust in your own good works to save you. In fact, if you are trusting in your own good works, then your good works are useless. They aren't even good works. They just kind of approximate good works. Don't trust in your own good works to save you. Don't trust in your own goodness to save you, your own ability to, to resist sin, your own ability to do, to do good things. Don't trust in that stuff to save you not going to get you anywhere. Do good stuff, but do good stuff because God died for you and God saved you. Trust in God's work to save you. And now that you've been forgiven, now that you repent and put your faith in Christ's death on the cross and you are forgiven, thanks be to God. What a wonderful weight off your shoulders. Don't you feel like going out there and helping your neighbor and loving your neighbor and loving God? Once you're forgiven, you have that freedom to be able to love God. But trust in God. That's the whole thing. That's what saves you. That trust in God. God's work saves you, not your own work. I don't know how many other ways I can say it. Trust in God. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. An absolute classic. You have a wonderful day. So this week, Jesus tells us a parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Let's get into it. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of those more well-known Bible stories like David and Goliath or Daniel and the lion's den. But I would say that the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually so common. It's, it's probably one of the most common ones, in fact. But it's so common that it's actually made it into our language, into our secular language, into our day-to-day -day vernacular. If someone says that they are acting like a Good Samaritan, usually this means that they're acting like a good person, they're helping somebody else who's in need, etc. Um, we have things like the Good Samaritan laws, 
We have things like Good Samaritan Hospitals, Good Samaritan Charities, things like that. So when it comes to being a Good Samaritan, a lot of the time, the temptation is to think that we are the Good Samaritan. We look at the story and we say, okay, well, don't be like that priest or that Levite who walk up to this man who's beaten and bloody and, and ignore him, but instead be like the Good Samaritan who helps him. There's something to that. Jesus does command to go and do likewise, after all. But if you look at the beginning of the story, even before the story begins, before the parable begins, it starts out because this lawyer is trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to trap him in his own words. He's saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's a flawed question to begin with. Uh, you don't do anything to get an inheritance. Somebody else does something. Namely, that person dies. Then you get an inheritance. But the phrasing aside, uh, this lawyer wants to ask Jesus what has to happen so he can be saved. Fair enough. What has to happen so he can come to salvation? Well, Jesus tells him to love his neighbor. Well, I mean, the guy, Jesus says, you know, what does the law say? And the guy says, well, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. Jesus says, okay, well, do that, and, <laughs> and you'll be saved. Uh, the guy, knowing that he is not loving his neighbor perfectly, is not loving God perfectly, the guy says, well, who is my neighbor? Maybe if he can limit it down to one or two people, he can, uh, uh, he can love them well enough to be saved. I mean, again, he's wrong, but yeah, I can give him props for trying. Uh, and uh, so he does this, and Jesus explains who his neighbor is by telling the, the, the parable. This dude is going from uh, Jericho to, or he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You always go down to Jericho. You go up to, up to Jerusalem. Uh, there's symbology in that, there's symbolism in that language there. Um, but yeah, so uh, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and going along the way, he gets he gets not just robbed, but like beaten to death, basically. Uh, all of his clothes, everything he owns is taken away. Completely robbed, stripped of everything. It's all taken away. He's beaten to a bloody pulp. Half dead, the text says. Literally half half dead. Uh, and when somebody's half dead, that means that they're dying, basically. That doesn't mean like, I'm half dead and I'll just shake it off, you know, like a broken arm or whatever. Anyway, so this guy's beaten up. Uh, these people start coming down from Jerusalem. Uh, first a priest goes by, then a Levite goes by. Both of them are, are holy men who work in the temple. Neither of them stop to help. Neither of them ask anybody else for help. Neither of them go and call for help. Um, and then this Samaritan comes by. Well, a Samaritan, if you don't know, a Samaritan is one of the other enemies of the Jewish people who lived in proximity. Uh, a Samaritan would be like a Gentile or a tax collector, a bad dude. So this would be, I mean, again, this would be the point in the parable where something shocking happens. Jesus always does this. He tells a parable that sounds normal until you get to a certain point, and then it's like, what? That's, that's weird. That's not how things go. You know, why would a shepherd leave his 99 sheep to find one? 99 is a bigger number than one. You know, why would a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jewish people, help a Jewish person? Um, so this is where the shock come in, comes in. The Samaritan uh, binds the guy's wounds. The Samaritan gives, you know, pours oil and wine, disinfects the guy's wounds, takes him to an inn, three days worth of treatment and says, I'm going to return. So he, he, he takes him to an inn, cares for, for a day, and then pays for two more days, two denarii, two more days. So you've got this, this three, day, three day and then a return motif going on here. And uh, hopefully at this point, don't need to tell you what that's a reference to, three days and then a return. Um, but yeah, so you've got this thing where the Good Samaritan is the one that heals this guy and helps this guy. The Good Samaritan, the enemy, is actually the neighbor of this person, it turns out. Now, the lawyer was kind of hoping that Jesus would say, 
that your neighbor is a person who lives on either side of you, your neighbor is your priest or your Levite or your friend or your close family member, but Jesus is including enemies as neighbors. So, you know, love your enemy is a, is a command in the Bible, but love your neighbor is a command that also applies to your enemies. So here Jesus is doing the old switcheroo, the old switcheroo. Uh, instead of you or instead of the lawyer being the one who ends up doing enough good because you can't. Sorry, you can't do enough good to earn salvation. Uh, you can't even do enough good to earn part of your way to salvation. You're, well, let's put it like this. You're completely stripped of all of your good works. They mean nothing. They cover none of your sin. Your shame is barren to the entire world, or born to the entire, your shame is bared to the entire, the, the whole world sees your shame. It's as if you were stripped naked of all of your works. And then you realize, oh no, I don't have what it takes to save me. I'm as good as dead. It's only a matter of time before I die. You're half dead. You get it? <laughs> you are not the good Samaritan. You're the dead guy. You're the guy who's as good as dead, dying, bleeding out, completely naked, stripped of all of his good works. That's you. You're the one who needs help. You're not the one who's going around helping people and then walking to heaven on your own two feet. Nope. You're the guy who's dying. And thanks be to God for that, because, well, not because that you're, you know, stripped of all your possessions and beaten to a bloody pulp, but thanks be to God that you're not the one who has to pick himself up, dust himself off, pull himself up by his bootstraps, and then good work his way to heaven. That's not how it works. First of all, that takes credit away from God, and second of all, that, that puts this responsibility on you that's just impossible, literally, actually impossible. But then Jesus comes by, and Jesus sees you in your shameful, beaten, bloody, and dying state. Dying in sin only a matter of time before you end up in hell. Only a matter of time before you die. And you can't even call out to Jesus. This isn't you asking, you know, giving your life to Christ and then, and then he works for you. This isn't you cooperating with him and then, you know, you lean on his shoulder, but you really walk, you limp your way to heaven. No, this is you are dying. You are dead in your sin. You are dying, unable to... to to, to choose to repent, unable to choose to have faith, unable to choose to do anything to save yourself. Jesus comes by, he picks you up, he binds your wounds, he, he heals you of your sin, of the, of the eternal consequences of your sin. He sets you on a path, he sets you on a path of healing, I, I would say. Uh, if things were to progress as they were when Jesus found you, you would be dead in hell, you would be dead in sin. Jesus found you, and changed your fortune, changed your future, um, set you up with eternal life. Jesus put bindings on you. Jesus, you know, anoints you with these, with these blessings of, uh, of well, it says, it says wine and oil, but, you know, he gives you the blessings of the sacraments and scripture and of confession and absolution. Jesus comes and he takes care of you and everything is out of his own pocket. It's not that he just magics this forgiveness into existence, but he takes on the debt for your sin. He takes on the pain and suffering that you have to endure, and he pays the price for your salvation. So thanks be to God that you are not the good Samaritan. You are the dying man that Jesus brought back to life. You are the dying man who will now make a full recovery one day in heaven. So as your sin continues to heal, Jesus continues to provide for you. And now that you are healed enough, yeah, maybe you can go and you can love your neighbor as yourself. You can love God. Obviously, you can't do it perfectly, but hey, go and do likewise is a pretty good command. If God loved you so much that he would die for you, 
might not be a bad idea to love others as well. Just a thought. Yep, point of the story. You were dead in your sin. God saved you. Jesus Christ, the good Samaritan, saved you with his death on the cross and his resurrection. And now you got life in front of you. And hey, would you look at that? I have donuts in front of me. Well, you have a wonderful and blessed evening.